Father, would you give us eyes to see this morning? As we look at your word, would your spirit uh, translate and penetrate our hearts to be changed? God, that we would see if we are a part of your family, if we've made a decision for you, that we are called your children and that through that, we know how much we're loved. And that through that love, that would give us confidence to move forward in our life in every situation, that we wouldn't shrink back because of shame, but that we would move in confidence to love you and love others. Would you give us eyes to see that this morning? Spirit, would you give us a, a heart that would be soft and transformed? Would you give us ears to hear it? We're desperate to hear from you this morning. Would you meet us in this time, in this space? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I grew up playing sports, and some of you know, but some of you don't know, my first real sport and my first love was actually soccer. I loved playing soccer. I was actually quite good at soccer, but that was over 30 years ago. It was a long, long time ago. I actually have a picture of, uh, look at, look at, I'm right there in the middle. Look how hard I, ah, those guys next to me, they're way too happy to be playing <laughs> soccer on my team. That was about uh, sixth grade, I believe. I lived in Virginia at the time, and there was uh, a decent soccer community where I grew up. And, uh, and then we moved to Phoenix in junior high, and nobody plays here because it's a thousand degrees. I mean, a, a long time ago, it's still a thousand degrees, but um, they would play in the winter, and so I also played basketball, and so I had to choose between soccer and basketball, and I chose to play basketball. Um, but I loved playing soccer, and maybe three months ago or so, uh, one of our members of our church just opened an indoor soccer facility not too far from my house, and he was like, hey, we have an adult soccer night on Thursday nights. You should come play. And anytime I hear like adults are playing sports, I, I feel like I can enter into that at some level. I, I, I'm still active. I still play weekly basketball. I'm like, oh, okay. And he knows I played soccer. I was like, okay, so I'll go out. So I go out to play this one evening. It was just a bad decision uh, for lots of reasons. <laughs> and again, I haven't played or touched the ball in, in 30 years. And so, but I, I feel like, oh, okay, I can hang. Like, I'll be, I'll be fine. I go out. There's, there's two pitches going side by side. It's an indoor kind of, again, it's just kind of pickup soccer. It's four on four. And so I go out and I'm thinking, it's going to be like a bunch of dads, which there were some dads, but like, just to give you context, the guy on my team had played for the LA Galaxy, which is like a professional soccer league. And he was retired. And I was like, I shouldn't be out here <laughs> at all. And it showed, right? Like we started playing and it was, I was just, you can kind of hide in other sports, you know, like if you're not that good, but four and four, like it was just like, it was like blood in the water for the, the other team, you know? And I, I, I can't remember the last time um, I felt so exposed and inadequate uh, and just terrible uh, athletically. And so uh, if I was to be asked back, which I, w I was not asked back, uh, <laughs> for good reason. If I was asked back, there's no way I would go. There's no way I would go, because I have zero confidence that I belong in that space, right? Uh, and I kind of walked in, not, not with a ton of confidence, but feeling like, oh, okay, I'll be okay, and then after I left with, with zero, zero confidence. Um, and it just makes me wonder, when we think about confidence, does, does confidence matter in life? It could be sports, it could be a relationship, it could be your job, it could be school if you're in school still. Like, how much does confidence play into every scenario that you deal with? Even thinking through it, like, would you want more confidence in certain areas of your life? How would that change the way you interacted with your relationships, with your tasks that you have at hand? 
confidence matters in life. Uh, psychologists talk about confidence a lot. They talk about, man, if you have more confidence, they usually use the term self-confidence, but if you're confident going into things, here's some of the, the benefits of the, that they would list. They would say you, you're going to have a better performance at work or school. You're going to have an openness to try new things. You're going to have increased resilience. You'll have better interpersonal relationships and mental health. You'll have increased happiness and a sense of well-being all from confidence. I think any of us would look at that list and go, I would, I would like more of that. That would maybe help my life and, and make me be more full as a human. And uh, confidence is interesting. Like even when we were at the beach, we just sat at the beach all last week. It was amazing. We have some friends that have beach houses out there. And so we just tacked on to our vacation. And, and, uh, and one of my friends who came from Miami that was there, we started talking. And uh, when I was two, I moved to Southern California. And so my first memories were being in the ocean. And I, I feel confident going into the water. Like the ocean is like a scary place. Like there's sharks and octopus. There's all kinds of things in the ocean that can get you, right? Um, but I feel very confident going out into the water and boogie boarding or surfing or doing those types of things because I think I grew up in it. My friend who uh, was out there as well, he didn't see a beach until college. So he's like terrified of the water. Rightly so. Like, that can be a scary thing with the waves, and you don't know what's going on under your feet. You can't see anything. So confidence makes a difference depending on how you're interacting with what you're doing. So if confidence is such a, a big piece of how we interact in our world, where do we get our confidence from? If you look back before kind of this experiment of America started, uh, most uh, communities were more tribal. They were, they were more connected to our family. And we got our confidence from our line of family, right? If you watch any of these old-timey shows that my wife, my wife watches, you know, like the Downton Abbey, that kind of stuff, like it's all about your family lineage. You have confidence because you were born into this family and you're going to get something because of your ancestors, Right? And then America happened, and there's part of a beauty to, like, you don't have to be tied to anybody. In America, like, your confidence comes from your accomplishments. So if I do this or do that, and I have this resume or these things, like, I have confidence that I can move into certain areas, I can move into certain spaces, I can make a certain amount of money, because your confidence no longer is dependent on your family line, but it's actually dependent on your accomplishments, and I think most of us think of confidence in that way. We think of like, okay, do I have the skills to be able to do this? And it's proven that gives me more confidence stepping into certain unknown things. Well, it's interesting because Paul writes this letter to the church in Rome. And some of you are familiar with this text. It's, it's fairly well known. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, what does Paul say? He says, don't conform to what? The pattern of this world. So if our confidence was supposed to come from like our lineage or it was supposed to come from like our accomplishments and Paul's saying, don't let, uh, don't, don't be formed by the pattern of the world. That's how everybody else thinks. And if we're going, well, our, our confidence shouldn't come from those things. Where does our confidence actually come from and how should we live it out with what the Bible says? And in the economy of the kingdom, your confidence is tied to relationship, but it's not your earthly family relationship. And it is tied to an accomplishment but it's not your accomplishment. It's an accomplishment that Jesus has done for you. And understanding that will change the way you move into certain situations and relationships with confidence. And that's actually where John is going to take us this morning in the text. So the big idea, what we're going to drill down on in these several verses is this. In the economy of the kingdom, our confidence is connected to our kinship. In the economy of the kingdom, our confidence is connected to our kinship. 
kinship. And again, John is writing, as we've been in this series, he's writing to the church to give them some assurance. They're confused by these false teachers that have come along and said, well, to really walk with Jesus, ah, Jesus really wasn't who he says he was. You have to have this special knowledge to understand. And John is cutting right through that and going, no, you can actually be confident in your relationship with Jesus. You can actually know him. And depending on your belief and how you abide in him and how you understand his love, you can be confident moving forward in your relationship with Christ. And that's what John is trying to do in this section of text This idea that if we understand our position as God's children and we set our minds on confidence based on God's promises, then we will feel different and we will live different. So let's jump into the text. Let's look back at it quickly. Uh, This is, again, 1 John starting in chapter 2, ending in the end of chapter 2 and starting in chapter 3. Let's read it together and then we'll walk through what does it actually mean for us today. Verse 28 says, And now... Little children, which John has done this several times. He's, uh, as a pastor, like, 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 I care about you. Little children, listen to what I have to say. He says, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, talking about Jesus coming back, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. And if you know the story of the Bible, you see God continually pursuing his people. That's what this story is about. It's about a God that loves his creation, loves his people, pursues his people, even when we don't pursue him. And even in Genesis chapter 3, when the first humans decide to not follow God and there's sin involved in the story, what do they do? When God comes after them to have a relationship with him in Genesis 3, what do they do? They shrink back because of shame. They hide themselves because they feel disconnected. And John is saying for us to have confidence and not to shrink back at shame when Jesus returns. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We're going to talk about the love that the Father gives us. We get taste of certain love, whether it's um, the most complete and understanding way we experience love in our world. Maybe it's a mother with a child, or maybe it's a husband and a wife, that we get taste of this love, or we're going to see that the Father's love is even a greater and more robust way that he loves us. And then it says, the reason that the, uh, why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2 says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be is not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, again, Jesus coming back, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So if confidence is connected to our kinship, if you don't know that word kinship, it's just, uh, it's originally the old English, the, the word kin means family. So before we started using the word family in English, we use the word kin, that's what that means. So if our confidence is connected to our kinship, how do we know we're kin? How do we know we're actually children of God, that we're in his family? We've talked about this before, and I think it's worth bringing up again in this context, and we're going to see John's even going to drill down even deeper with this understanding of like, you're either a a child of God, he's going to say later in the chapter, or you're a child of the devil, which is strong language, but 
when we've talked about this before, we kind of have this idea um, in our culture that kind of, maybe you've heard this or maybe you've even said this, we're all God's children, right? Like if I asked you, like, are we all God's children? And you might say, yeah, we're, we're all God's children, but the Bible actually doesn't talk about us being children of God in that way. And it can be confusing. And so let's just take a second to, to clarify for us, um, we are all God's creation. God has created us. He stamped his image on us, which means every single person, whether they know and made a decision for Jesus or they don't, have the divine uh, stamped on them. They have inherent value and worth. And so that's why we love even people that aren't Christians because they have worth, because they have an image of God stamped on them. We're all created by God. But the Bible talks about to be a child of God, something has to happen. There has to be a transfer. There has to be an adoption. And John is clearly talking about that, and he will continue to talk about that idea. And it's just like when my wife and I were engaged to be married. Man, we felt in love. The feelings were real. We had a date on the calendar. We had invitations out. Like We, we had a, a mental understanding of when we were going to get married. We had an emotional understanding. We had a mental understanding. But we didn't get married until what legally? We stood in front of people. We made vows of covenant. And we took an act of our will to step forward to say, yes, we will be married together. And some of us grow up in the Christian life and we go, well, I, I feel connected to God. There's, there's a feeling I felt connected before to God. Or maybe we go, I, I know all the answers. I have a mental ascent of understanding what Jesus has done for me. But you've never actually made an act of your will to say, listen, I recognize I'm, I'm, I'm separated from God. The Bible says that, that I need Jesus' sacrifice on the cross to make me right, to make me whole, to adopt me into God's family. And that's when you become a child of God. It's not until you make that decision as an act of faith to surrender your life to Jesus. John, in his gospel, the same author of 1 John, he says it this way in John chapter 1, verses 12, verse 12, he says, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And so there's something about receiving him, there's something about believing in him that's an act of your will that has to happen for you to be transferred from a, a place of darkness to a place of life, that you would be adopted into God's family, that uh, you're called an enemy of God even though he loves you, you're separated from him even though he loves you until you make an act of your will to understand what Jesus has done for you and you surrender your life to him, you're not kin, you're not a child. So most of you have heard that, but I think it's worth drilling down on to, to give us understanding of what John is actually saying to the children of God. So maybe you have made that decision. I know several of you have in this room. And so maybe you go, yeah, I'm in the child category. So if that's the first step, the second is, do you know what that means? Do you know what it means, how much God loves you? Because that's the part that I think most of us get tripped up on. That's the part that most of us go, I think I know what it means that God loves me. And John is just like, uh, go, again, cutting through all the noise to go, do you understand? Do you understand how much the Father loves you if you're a child of God? There's an author named Sky Jatani that some of you are familiar with. I really like his work. And he wrote a book called With several years ago, W-I-T-H. And what does it look like for us to commune with God? That's the whole premise of the book. I would highly encourage you to read it. Um, one of the chapters, he talks about that he, is, um, he, he lives near a very prominent Christian college in the Midwest. 
And as he began to develop relationships with students at this college, he realized that, man, there really wasn't a safe place for them to share their struggles. Because they felt like if they shared what they were really dealing with, they were going to be shunned by the community or there's going to be consequences. And so they just kind of put on a mask. They can't really say what they're struggling with. They can't really deal with it. And some of us feel like that's what the church is, right? Like we walk in, we have to put these happy faces on because there's coffee and donuts and, hey, how are you? Good to see you. And maybe you're in a really dark place or a really hard place. Maybe you're dealing with your sin or some brokenness and you don't feel like you can really share it. And he's dealing with this as he writes about it. And so he develops this community of kids, students, to come over to his house to create a place for them to be honest with no consequences. He doesn't work at the university. He's not tied to that. He just wants to create a space of openness and honestness. And in the midst of that, he says there's three rules to this community. The first rule is that you have to be honest. Second rule is you have to be gracious when somebody else is honest. And the third rule is you have to be present. To be honest, gracious, and present. So he creates this space, this community for these Christian uh, college students to really share what they're struggling with. And one night as he writes about it in the book, they were sitting there and they started talking about habitual sins. Sins that you can't shake, that you don't want to do them, but you keep coming back to them. And for a lot of these kids, it had to do with drinking or it had to do with sex. And they didn't feel like they could share that in their spaces they were in at college. And so as they went around, Sky asked this question of all of them. He said this, he says, how do you think God views you in the midst of your sin? How do you think God views you in the midst of your sin? And he says in the book, it it took an hour to go around to everybody who were really sharing honestly. And in the midst of it, some of the stuff that came up was like, he's disappointed in me. Man, he must think I'm a failure. Kind of shakes his head at me and just, "Ah." he expects more of me. And then he asked this follow-up question. He goes, how many of you were raised in a Christian home? Like, went to church with a Bible-teaching church, and every hand went up. And he was like, man, this is crazy. Like, all of you grew up reading the Bible since you could read and, and, and probably having loving parents, and, and like, none of you answered correctly. I think that's a fair question even for us to, to answer this morning. In the midst of your sin, how does God view you? And he said, man, none of you answered that even in the midst of your sin, God still loves you. Because most of us think like it's, it's, it's now it's based on me. Once I come to, to Jesus and I make a decision for him and, and my salvation's secure, and now it's based on my works. It's based on my action. And when I step out of bounds, God shakes his head and says, man, you should know better. Again? Come on, man. Right? A lot of us feel that way with God. And what John is telling us is that God loves us even in the midst of our sin. Again, this is hard for us to wrap our minds around. It really is. Uh, There's an artist named DJ Khaled. And uh, I'm not endorsing his work uh, from the pulpit, but um, I'm not not endorsing his work. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, DJ Khaled became a dad about six years ago. And he talks in interviews about how having a son has changed his life. He talks about how, man, I I didn't really know what real love was until I had a son. And I want to watch a a real quick clip of him talking to his son. His son is now six. His his son's name is Assad. They live in Miami. Um, But this is when his son is a toddler. Not even a toddler. He's he's younger than a toddler. He's a baby. Watch how DJ Khaled talks to his son. Check this out. You're a legend. You're a boss. You're an icon. You're a god. You're self-made. 
You're a genius. You're the greatest that ever did it. You're my son. Asad, Dad. I love you so much, boy. I love you so much. I love you so much. Yes, boy. When I first saw that clip, I was like, that's such a beautiful picture of how the Father lavishes his love on us, right? That he speaks truth over us. That DJ Khaled's son hasn't done anything. He could barely hold his head up, right, at that point in his life. But his father is speaking this truth over him, saying, I love you. I love you. Do you know, you know, he's saying like, you're self-made. You're a dawn. You're a legend, right? Like, that's not... That's not the things that the Father says to us, <laughs> just to be clear. But do you know what the Father does say to you? Do you know when he, when he wants to communicate you, when he looks at you as his child? Do you know what he says? Here's maybe the list from Ephesians 1. This, this is what uh, the Bible says as the Father is looking at you through the grid of the blood of Jesus. Not because of your own effort, but because of the perfect effort of Jesus. He looks at you as his child if you've made that decision to receive him. And this is what he says about you based on Ephesians 1. He says you're blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're chosen, you're holy, you're blameless, you're predestined, you're adopted, you're redeemed, you're forgiven. Do you know how much I love you? I love you. Even in the midst of your sin. Even in the midst of, you're going like, ah, screw up. No, I love you. What would happen if DJ Khaled's son in that moment like threw up on him? Or, you know. Uh, did something in his diaper. Like, would his, oh, golly, son. Like, would he put him down and change his diaper? No. Let's clean you up. Man, I love you. And the Bible talks, those are our good works, not our bad works. Do you know how much the Father loves you? Not based on your abilities, not based on your work, not based on how much you read the Bible, but based on you being a child because of the work of the cross. He says, I love you. I love you. I love you. That's where we get our confidence from. We don't get it from doing the right things and walking into situations so that we know, man, God loves me. And one day when he returns, which is the promise that is solid, it's not faulty like these other things we kind of lean into in our world. It's a promise that's solid, that will happen in the midst of us having confidence that Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, do we have confidence knowing who we are as a child or do we shrink back because of our sin? If Jesus walks through these doors right now, and we know it's Jesus, do you run to him and just grab him? Or do you kind of shrink back like, oh, last night was bad, I did it again. Because you're not understanding the power of the blood of Jesus that covers you. As it covers you, you become a child, and God speaks that truth and love to you, and then you have confidence to move into situations. You can have confidence in an airport where you're trapped for seven hours, not to lose your mind, just to go like, you know what? He's going to come back. 
Like this suffering is minimal. How do I love people in the midst of this? How do I trust that God is good? Because some of us go like, even though I'm his child, I don't feel like he's good because if he was really good, he would give me X or Y or Z. And you go, I don't know if he's good because I don't have a spouse yet. I don't know if he's good. We don't have a baby yet. We've been trying and praying and I don't know if he's good. I don't have that job yet. And we have to redefine what good is. Right? You guys know this as parents, if you're a parent. Like my nieces come over, I don't give them sugar that they want all the time because it actually wouldn't be good for them. And sometimes God in his love for you is not giving the thing you're asking for because it's not actually going to be good for you in the long run. Do you trust him that he loves you, that he's good, just like DJ Khaled is talking to his son, I love you, I love you, I love you. Do you know the father loves you in that way if you're found in him? And if you really do that, it'll change the way you live. But most of us don't experience God in that way. We kind of question if we're really, like, I know, I know I'm a child of God theologically, but I don't really experience his love in that way. It's interesting, again, if Jesus walked in the room, what would you do? Would you shrink back in shame or would you run to him? There's another video I thought about playing, but I don't want all of us to cry <laughs> in this room. Uh, I don't know if you've seen those on YouTube, those, those, uh, the, the military fathers coming home. Uh, and, and, and there's one, there's a bunch of compilations of like them coming home to their wives, which is awesome. But man, when they come home to their kids, have you seen those? Like, I'm just like, <laughs> every time, every time I watch them. Um, because like there's, it's a surprise usually. And they're either in the airport, or they walk in the door. And what do their kids do? Have you seen those videos? Do any of them go, oh, I didn't make my bed today. Oh, no. Like they run to their dad. And they grab him, and they're crying, and they're so happy because they know that they're loved. They know their dad's home. Are we going to have that type of experience when Jesus comes back, that we run to him, not based on what we do, but based on who he is because he loves you. Loves you. He loves you more than you could ever understand. When the text is talking about, as John is talking about, like we're uh, really in verse 2, um, that we're children, uh, and, and sorry, in verse 2, and what we will be like has not yet appeared, but we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Later, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians, or earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, this, he says it this way, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Later on in the book, in verse uh, 12 of chapter 13, Paul says it this way. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That right now, where we are in the midst of our journey, we're in this brokenness. The kingdom is, has started. It's here uh, because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the spirit that is given to you, that we can get a taste of the kingdom. You can get a taste of renewal of relationships that are broken. You can get a taste of what it means to love, and we can experience that, but you know we can't fully experience it yet. And it's not until Jesus comes back and he makes all things right and he makes all things new that we'll be fully restored. We don't fully see him now, but we will see him when he comes back face to face. And we need to have that. We forget about, I forget about that in the Christian life. Oh, yeah, he's coming back. 
And he's going to make all things right and all things new. And if I'm in his family, if I'm a child of him, I will experience full restoration of my heart. I don't know about you, but I need that. We're going to sing a song during response called We Will Feast in the House of Zion. It's talking about that day. And one of the lines is that we will sing with our hearts restored. And every time we sing that, I think about my broken relationships. I think about the hard things in my life. I think about my bank account. I think about things that stress me out. And I go, one day, it's all going to be made right. We'll sing with our hearts restored. That's what John is saying. He's trying to give them confidence and assurance that one day it'll all be made right again. One day there'll be no more pain, no more tears, no more seven-hour layovers, no more headaches. It's going to be made right again. So if that's the case, if one day it will be made, what do we do now until we see him face to face? If our confidence is connected to our kinship, how do we boost that connection? John gives us three things to do right now for us today. You'll see it in verse 28, 29, and verse 3. The first thing he tells his people to do, which carries on to us, is in verse 28, he says, abide in him. Abide in him. This idea of abide is remain, be continually connected to him, tethered to him. We've talked about this. We'll continue to talk about it as John uses it as a language, as a word picture, to abide, to be connected to him. What does this look like in the context of relationship to be so connected? We see a picture of it in John chapter 5. Jesus is going like, I can't do anything without the Father. I don't say anything. I don't make a move. Like, he's fully dependent on his Father. And that's how we should be. Are you abiding? Are you connected? Are you spending time in the Word? Are you spending time listening to him, praying? The reason we're doing some of the discipleship stuff that we're going to roll out in the fall is because we want to create these environments for you to be more dependent on your relationship with Jesus. If you're just coming to church once a week or once a month, and that's it, like you're not going to be really connected and dependent. It's not about having more programs for having more programs sake. It's about understanding what does it mean to abide, to be connected to the Father, to hear, like DJ Khaled says to his son, to hear, I love you, I love you, I love you. How are you doing in your abiding? It's not a checklist. It's not a, I feel better about myself because I read the Bible this morning. No, it's like, how are you hearing that you're a child of God and that you're loved. We want to allow for environments like that, not only on Sundays, but throughout the week because so much information is coming from the other direction all week long in our ears, isn't it? So how do we combat that with what's true? How do we abide in him, as he says in verse 28? Then he says in verse 29, practice righteousness. I love that John uses this word practice quite a bit. I actually really like this word that he uses. Practice in the original language is just kind of this mode of action that you're doing consistently to get better. He says practice righteousness. The word righteousness, again, it's kind of a churchy word, but what it actually means in the original language is to live uprightly, to live with integrity, virtue, purity of life, righteousness, correct thinking and feeling, and correct acting. So are you practicing those things? I was thinking about this practice idea and made me think when my kids were little. And when your kids are little, you have to train them to practice certain things that they probably wouldn't do on their own. So it becomes second nature. And I was thinking about teaching them to brush their teeth. No kid wants to brush their teeth, right? It's got to be part of the routine at night. 
right? But eventually, they get to learning how to brush their teeth, and they do it on a constant basis because if they don't do it, everybody knows. Same thing for you. If you don't brush your teeth and you walk up to, in the passing of the piece and, hey, it's good to see you, ah, you know? Like, we do these things, but we didn't just roll out of bed to do them. We practiced them. And you practice it every time you do it. And so what John is saying is like, we need to start practicing right living. We need to be intentional to put this stuff on of learning what it means to love and to forgive and to think rightly and with virtue, which is not a very high priority in our culture. He's saying practice righteousness to be connected and know who you are as a child. And then in verse 3, he says to purify oneself. So practicing righteousness is kind of putting on these good things. Purifying yourself might be putting off these things that are not helpful for you. Right? And we can all do this in all types of ways because we slip into these habits, we slip into these patterns, and if we really assess them or if we had somebody in our community assess them and go like, Actually, I don't think that's the best for you. You know, like three hours of YouTube is probably not the best for you. I'm not against YouTube, but do you feel like more of a human or less of a human after that experience? Right? So what are the things that we just, we just need to stop doing? And some of us are like tied to these things. They're those habituals. We want to get out of it, but we need help. But some other things that we could just go, I just need to, to not do that. Like, what's an area this week that you go, you know what, I, I, I don't need to do that. And then get around some people to help you in that. If you can't do it on your own, trusting the Spirit to change you, then ask for help. We need to abide in Him. We need to practice righteousness. We need to purify ourselves. So that our confidence comes from us being children of God, not from our abilities, not from our bank account, not from all those other things, so that we can walk into relationships, we can walk into situations being confident of what's true in Jesus in us. And we can say, I'm going to move forward in that because my ground is solid. That's what John is trying to help his people understand. And that's what we need to understand is our confidence, again, is connected to our kinship. It's not connected to those other things. And the reason we can be confident and why we take communion every single week is to be reminded of what Jesus has done to make a pathway for us to be adopted as children in him. As we surrender our life to him, as we've given our life to him, those of you who call yourself Christians, you come up and remind yourself where your confidence comes from as you take a piece of bread which represents his body given to you. You dip it in the juice, which represents his blood shed for your sins, and you go, that's where I get my confidence. And when you come down this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, do you come down confidently or do you shrink back in shame because of your own behavior? This is where we do a reset every single week to remind ourselves, man, I want to abide in him. I, I want to practice righteousness. I want to purify myself. And I need Jesus and his spirit and his people to help me do that. That's why this is so important as a practice for us to go, this is where I get my confidence. And let that change the way you live. Let's pray that we do that today. Pray with me. Father, would you help us as we respond to you this morning God, would, would you meet us in our heads and our hearts to know that we're fully loved, 
that you speak the truth over us because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. As we receive him, we make an exchange, our life for his. Would you make that sink from our heads to our hearts so that as we move into relationships, into circumstances, into situations with people that are hard, we can have a confidence to know that you're going to come back one day, that you're going to make everything right one day, and that enables us to love even when it's hard. Would we be reminded as we step to the table this morning, as we respond this morning to your goodness? Help it be true this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen.